Welcome to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. In this episode, we explore the state of journalism in the U.S., including the challenges we face, as well as where we can find hope for a future of robust journalism that holds power to account and helps us understand our world, both near and far. My guest is Tom Rosensteel, journalist, press critic, and co-author of the seminal book on journalism, The Elements of Journalism, which is now in its third edition. Rosensteel is also the author of 10 other books, including four novels. He's currently the Eleanor Merrill Visiting Professor on the Future of Journalism at the Philip Merrill College of Journalism at the University of Maryland. This is part one of our conversation. You can hear part two next week. Welcome, Tom. What I would love to talk about today, obviously, is sort of the state of the journalism industry. And you, I mean, just to kind of start off, uh, you know, I, I discovered your thinking when I read Elements of Journalism. And then that really changed my thinking or, you know, helped me think about journalism in a new way. So um, let's start by talking about kind of where journalism is at in the U.S. And I was thinking local journalism, but maybe you just want to take, you know, the industry in general. Um, Where's it at from your perspective? Well, it's in a difficult place. Journalism is in a difficult place. Uh, And it's not in one place. It's in actually several places. So national newspapers, of which we have really three, maybe four, uh, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, and to a lesser degree, USA Today, those are in a pretty healthy place. Um, the, The New York Times has kind of made the leap across the digital divide, and it's even made the leap across the economic model divide, by which I mean it now makes most of its money from subscriptions, not from advertising. And that is the future of media in America. Um, American media used to be uh, subsidized or, you know, or, or fueled economically almost entirely by advertising. Newspapers, about 80%. Television, broadcast television, 100%. Um, and all of that advertising, particularly for magazines and newspapers, has shifted over from the producers of journalism to the platforms that distribute it. So almost all the advertising revenue now belongs to Google and Facebook. Two thirds of all digital ad revenue is controlled by those two companies, two thirds. And when you add in Amazon, it's about 70% of all ad revenue. So that's just a, 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 you know, a shift. So the future is in in getting people to pay for your content. The New York Times has done that. It's close to 8 million subscribers now. It used to sell a million copies in print, still does. So the Wall Street Journal has been charging for its digital content forever. Um, And the Washington Post, subsidized by Jeff Bezos, is well on its way to um, making it. Now, one reason they're okay is because they only need to get a small percentage of people in each community. You know, if the New York Times gets less than 1% of, of people in each major city, it's going to do great. And it's it's really an international product now. Now, local newspapers and local media in general, a very different story. The shift to subscriptions, are there enough subscriptions in San Francisco to subsidize the Chronicle or in Dallas to subsidize the Dallas Morning News? 
You can't do it with 1% of the market. You're going to, uh, the, the way New York Times can, you're going to really need to get 20, you know, 20, 30% of people in your community to pay you something for your content. So it sounds like things aren't, aren't great for local outlets. There is a silver lining to this though, which I think a lot of people don't recognize. And that is that when you are measuring your value based on whether people will pay for you, the metrics you use of what matters and whether your content is valuable shifts quite a bit. In the advertising era of the internet, we were in the, in, in the page view era, clickbait. You know, how many eyes can you get on something? And, you know, that's when SF Gate has, you know, sort of the daily dish and bikini uh, pictures on, on its homepage. Um, when you shift to what is it that causes people to subscribe, to pay you, the metrics are very different. And what you discover is the content that they value is very different. It's no longer the most popular thing. In fact, what we're discovering in the data is pretty clear on this. It's the high value stuff. The things that journalists themselves think is really important is also what subscribers, uh, what drives subscriptions. It's content that's unique. It's content that's deep. It's content that serves them around some area or topic that no one else can serve them so well at. And so there's a, there's a happy convergence between newsroom values and subscriber values that we really haven't seen in the news business in a long time. That's actually exciting that subscribers do want more in-depth contextual content that helps them understand issues and navigate their communities. But we're still seeing so much polarization in partisan content. Now, let me just spend a minute on one other national form of journalism, and that's a TV news. Uh, the model in cable television, which is the kind of predominant form of TV news that I think people see today, is deeply partisan. Uh, this was started by Fox, but it is no longer limited to them. Those channels, by which I mean Fox, MSNBC, CNN, and, and now the offshoot channels, particularly on the right, they are heavily focused on politics. That's really their primary subject. And what they've found is what sells is partisanship. Um, and uh, CNN for a while tried to continue to try and play the both sides. Um, but uh, it discovered during the Trump years that uh, outrage about the other side is what really drives an audience. And that is not limited to prime time. So when we think about the state of journalism, there is a deep partisan media strain that did not exist 20 years ago that is enabling, amplifying, and even exaggerating the political polarization that exists in the country. One last little bit, since we're doing the whole media landscape. Let's do it. Local TV news. <laughs> yes. And local TV news is, is rapidly driving toward a cliff that newspapers got to 20 years ago, which is um, people are no longer going to get their television through cables and wires. They're going to get it through streaming. And it's very unclear what happens to local TV news when um, uh, when all television is streamed, because the, these channels and these shows, these news shows, really don't have a digital identity yet. Uh, they haven't figured out how to stream their content in any meaningful way. And when you look at the data about younger audiences, people under 40 years old 
virtually have no relationship whatsoever with local television news. And that was has been the dominant uh, and most popular um, and most trusted source of news in America for the last 50 years. They're not there yet, but three, four, five years from now, that medium, which has dominated our how we learn about the country, is going to fall off a cliff rapidly, just the way that newspapers did starting in 2005. You know, that's an interesting thing, because when TV, uh, when the spectrum moved digital, you know, when they started getting rid of analog TV, there was a how are we going to get to local channels? And now it's not the spectrum, but it's young people are getting their news from TikTok, from YouTube, from Snapchat. And there is no local space. I mean, you can have a channel, but as far as pointing out a local space for you, that's not happening. And you're right, because say what you will about the quality, we need to know what's happening near us so that we can be involved in that civic engagement. And yeah, losing TV news is a big deal. You've put your finger on something really huge, which is that the way we consume a lot of our media, uh, whether it's through social platforms and Facebook and Twitter or on YouTube, we have lost local, our local geopolitical uh, focus as a big connection. Um, if you go back to the history of American uh, media, it was very, very local. You know, we have we had 1,500 newspapers at 1. 1.2 thousand. You know, 600 local TV stations doing news. Um, the the big media companies were chains in many cases, but they were chains of local outlets. And um, you know, whether you're talking about Hearst or Scripps or Gannett, and that has just shifted and it's even shifted in when you look at startups you know the fastest way to scale is to be national and to be subject specific so um you know these are these are the unintended socio impacts of technology that wasn't designed to uh, have those impacts absolutely and you made an interesting point earlier about local local newspapers and the idea that um that obviously they, it's difficult to scale to the extent that a New York Times or a Washington Post or Wall Street Journal can scale. But there's also that question of, or at least for me, that question of ownership, right? And, you know, it's pretty well documented now how hedge funds have been sort of like siphoning money out of the local community and not reinvesting. And so how much of it do you think is an issue of ownership and, and the way they're working with the money that they do get versus, uh, well, and also shaking off subscribers who are no longer happy with the content versus the ability to draw subscribers in? Yeah, well, that's a difficult question because there's a chicken and egg element to this, right? Um, I think if you go back a ways, and, and so we're not looking just at sort of, is is this hedge fund a bad owner? Um, the answer is probably yes, but they entered into a market that was already set in a certain way. The news business for the last probably 100 years, um, or certainly newspapers in the last 70 years, were uh, oriented around efficiency. How can we do what we do for less money? And the reason is because, you know, the, the number of the percentage of Americans who read a newspaper started to drop in 1949, you know, because television came along. And so people thought, well, I don't have to read the newspaper anymore. And while we had newspapers that were growing, they were growing because other newspapers were dying. So the LA Times got bigger, but there were there weren't a lot of other newspapers in LA. So these companies really didn't think about creating new products and attracting new audiences. The newspaper business, in other words, was considered in the 
parlance of business, a mature industry for the last 80 years. Okay, you're not entrepreneurial. You're not trying to figure out how do we win over young people? How do we uh, win over new immigrants? How do we serve communities of color that we know? You you had all the readers you thought you were going to get. And uh, because you were getting your money from advertising, you really only wanted readers that advertisers wanted to have. Um, you know, it cost you three bucks to print the newspaper and you charged 50 cents for it. You were losing money on every newspaper unless the advertisers wanted to reach that reader. So it was a, it was a situation that was create, you know, built around demographics and not around um, serving a large population. So you have these companies, these newspapers, when the internet comes along, they don't know how to create new products. They don't know how to reach new audiences. They don't know how to um, do all the things that you would do in a newer or emerging market. Left very flat-footed. There they've been for 25 years or for 15 years, having to figure out how to do, how to create new products, new things, attract new readers, and they don't know how. And so these companies have come in, hedge funds, who say, well, we can continue to make money off these things. They still have a lot of cash and they're dying anyway. We'll help them die a little faster and we'll feed off the carcass as it happens. So hedge funds are really more opportunist then. Are there any owners out there who still care about the news product? You've got a handful of owners um, who are not playing that game. Uh, and those owners um, come in different flavors. There are commercial owners that are publicly traded companies like the New York Times that are not playing that game. They are trying to grow. They've, they are creating new products. You've got local billionaires, one in Los Angeles, Boston, Minneapolis, Washington, D.C., who can give you their company's runway. You have nonprofits um, that say, well, we'll own this paper or this publication, and it can, it can operate at, uh, at zero growth. You know, uh, all it has to do is break even or, you know, it can keep all the money that it, all the revenue that it makes, which, by the way, is basically the way some of these billionaires are operating. Don't lose me any money. And, and you know, and you've got some chains, Gannett, which although it's got some hedge fund money in it, um, they really are trying to figure out a way. They are not it's not being harvested the way that a digital first, which now owns a couple of hundred papers and just bought the Tribune company is. So. There's no one model of which owner is good or the right answer, but I think we do know that there's not really any model in which a hedge fund is a positive factor. Now, a, a hedge fund just bought um, McClatchy, uh, which owns a lot, you know, about 30 newspapers around the country and is headquartered in, in Sacramento. It's too soon to tell if they're a different kind of hedge fund owner than Digital First is. But um, Otis Chandler and Tom Johnson, who I worked for a long, long time ago, Otis Chandler was the publisher of the, of the, of the Los Angeles Times, and, and Tom Johnson was, well, Otis was the publisher, of, uh, the owner of the whole company, and Tom was the uh, publisher of the LA Times. And Tom said to me, what matters is not the structure of the ownership, but the values of the owner, whether that owner is a company or a person or a nonprofit. And uh, I think that still holds true. So the problem here with hedge funds is not that they are hedge funds, but that, that what's their purpose in owning the newspaper? Good point. Great point. Um, what about 
government funding models. I know that that's sort of a third rail, very uncomfortable. But, you know, the BBC has government funding. We have limited public media funding. Yeah. And I've, I've heard about some models uh, that may work. But but do you see that that as tenable at all here in our context? <laughs> in our context. <laughs> The one context we have is the uh, U.S. Congress, right? Right, right. Uh, which can't seem to figure out how to pay its debts or pass any bills other than sort of, uh, you know, bills to kind of honor, you know, somebody who, you know, is a, a World War II veteran or something like that. Not meaningful bills that are going to change the direction of the country. Right. That makes the idea of public of, of public funding, you know, seem pretty remote. Um, Fair enough. Uh, and particularly, you know, when you've got one party at the moment that has decided to demonize the, the, the media. Yeah. There are also sort of longer term um, kind of nuances to this. There is public financing of, of media in the United States through other means, through tax cuts and postal rate discounts and various things, mostly tax breaks rather than direct funding. Um, we also have the First Amendment in, in this country. Um, which is different than what they have in Britain and a lot of other countries. And journalists have internalized the idea in the, in the United States that we don't want the government involved. We Those are the guys we cover. And we don't trust these politicians to keep their hands off if they've got their hands in the purse as well. So uh, there's a, a wariness among many in journalism about having that, you know, having Uncle Sam being, uh, you know, uh, uh, involved with uh, the financing. That's why tax breaks have been a comfortable way for news companies to go and they lobby for them and all that. Um, but, you know, if you give me cash, it's a different situation. Finally, um, even in the countries where they have these long traditions, uh, like uh, Britain, uh, because of the state of government and the kind of attitudes of, toward, of the public toward government, there's a lot of pushback now. They would like to reduce um, the amount of money that uh, goes to the BBC. The BBC is often under attack from conservatives in that country. Um, and, you know, I know that there are people on the political left in the United States who would like to think of this as a, as a solution. Um, even if you thought it were, was a good idea, it's not going to happen. So I think it's just not really worth a lot of our mind space at the moment. You're listening to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. We're talking about the state of the news industry with author, journalist, press critic, and professor Tom Rosenstiel. All right, I'd love to shift. Um, there is uh, obviously we're starting to have the conversation about this term objectivity. Um, you've been talking about it. Wesley Lowry's been talking about it. And um, uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones has been talking about it. Lots of people. And I actually want to start because there's in in your book Elements of Journalism there's a there's a bit about opinion journalism and how that is journalism and what makes opinion journalism journalism. And here we are now in this space where opinion is kind of the winner uh, uh, of the day in a lot of ways. And and I've been trying to work with my students on differentiating between the journalism side and the non-journalism side. So I I would love to talk with you about you know, how you distinguish or how you would encourage people to distinguish those two things or those many nuances of things? Well, the first thing I think for, that it's important for people to understand is that not all publishing is news. Just because you publish something doesn't mean it's journalism. And in the same vein, not all opinion is opinion journalism. 
uh, as we say in the elements of journalism, for something to be opinion journalism, it has to adhere to all the same standards as other journalism, by which I mean you get the facts right, you verify, um, but it also goes deeper. It means that this opinion is your actual independent thinking and not that you're actually secretly a, you know, paid propagandist for one side or another, that you're not really a partisan pretending to be a journalist. So, you know, think of uh, opinion journalists that we know, like Michael Gerson at the Washington Post or uh, David Brooks at the New York Times or, uh, or Gail Collins at the New York Times or E.J. Dion in the Washington Post or writers at The Bulwark, which is a conservative publication out of Milwaukee. What they write is, is their opinion and their audience is listening to them and they, they are interested in their idiosyncrasies and they are not team players. They may be conservatives or they may be liberals, but if they were party hacks, they would not be interesting. Um, they are thinking it through on their own uh, and they go out and they do reporting. They do all the other things that uh, all other journalists do. They just um, are there. Uh, they're not reporting the news. They're sort of analyzing after the fact. That's pretty nuanced, okay? And they're in the world of opinion and not in the world, uh, you know, of reporting the news sort of uh, on day one. Yeah, and that takes a lot of work, too, to do that research and, and that legwork. It takes a lot of work. Most of these people were journalists and had this sort of religion of verification pounded into them. They would be mortified if they, you know, think of the difference between uh, well, and this is an important distinction. Think of the difference between a political ad and an interesting political column. One of them is designed to persuade you to think a certain way. The other one, the opinion journalism, is designed to get you to think about something. They're not actually trying to persuade you to a particular political outcome or viewpoint. Um, they want to be provocative to provoke your own thought. And that's really the big distinction between journalism and advocacy. I say in the new edition of Elements that journalism is a form of activism, but it's not a form of advocacy. And the difference is I'm an activist. I want you to think about this. And I want you, Gina, to come to your own conclusions. I'm going to tell you what my interpretation is, but you should think for yourself. And that's very different than I am trying to get you to vote on Proposition 3 a certain way. That's advocacy. You know, it's hard to tell, uh, you know, when it comes up in your social stream, which is which. But uh, after you've read it, you probably know the difference. Yeah, I, ho I hope so. You know, you brought up that word activism. And for many out there, that scares them when it's associated with journalism or it sort of, wait, wait, hold on. So how do you reconcile the, that, that concept of activism with journalism? What is activism? I mean, you did talk about, you did define it a little bit. Let's go further. Yeah. How do you define activism in the context of journalism? It's interesting uh, because in the earlier editions of the book, we, we didn't use the word activism to describe journalism. Um, but, um, you know, we have a new generation of journalists out there, like Wes Lowry and uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, who say they are out, they do want to change the world. And Nicole says she's motivated by rage over the state of uh, racism in the country. 
But she also says she adheres to all the principles of verification, uh, open-minded inquiry even, you know, follow the facts where they lead you. Wes says the same thing, Wes Lowry, who, who wrote powerfully in the New York Times about, uh, about objectivity in, in ways that he and I have tangled over. They subscribe to, so what you come down to is if you're going to follow the facts and go where they lead you and verify and, and find out what's true and correct your mistakes and all the other, you are practicing journalism. It may be journalism with a point of view. Um, and that gets us to the, we're gonna right into the question of what is objectivity. Right. Um, I'll, I'll go there right in before you answer the question. <laughs> because that is absolutely my next question. What is objectivity or what should it be? Objectivity is not neutrality. Um, and that conflation or, or thinking that it is or that that the journalist has no point of view is a complete misunderstanding of what objectivity was supposed to mean. In fact, it was at the, the beginning of the 20th century when we began to discover that the subconscious, the unconscious, and unconscious bias, that, that intellectuals said, we need to bring objectivity to journalism. And what they meant was we need to bring objective methods into journalism that I can see how you do it. So if, if your listeners think of objectivity as process, objectivity as method, you get closer to what, not only what the original intent was, but what Nicole Hannah-Jones and Wes Lowry would describe as their approach to journalism. We may argue over whether the word objectivity has any value at all, but um, there's no tension between having a point of view and being a great journalist. Think about the best journalists that we can uh, imagine in, you know, in America today, like um, great authors who go out and, and do magazine length uh, pieces in the New Yorker or books of history. You know what their point of view is. You know what their interpretation is. You also know that they have had you know, a, a devout uh, a fidelity to facts and verification and being surprised by where the facts take them. Many, many years ago, a journalist who was the editor of an alternative weekly, okay, alternative weeklies came along in the 60s and said, we're not, we're into advocacy journalism. Advocacy, by which they meant really, you know, spotlighting things, not, not really advocacy like political advocacy. And by that, you mean spotlighting issues in the community that needed attention. Spotlighting issues, getting people to think about things, um, not, not, try, not trying to be propaganda. She said, at my publication, and she was the editor of, a, of an alternative weekly, I think, in the Southwest, she said, at my publication, it's okay to have a point of view. I don't believe in objectivity, she said. And it's okay to have a point of view, but it's not okay to have one until you've explored all the other points of view. And I thought, well, that is the perfect definition of my version of objectivity, which is not that you're neutral or you don't have a point of view. Um, but that you want to understand everybody else's point of view. Thank you to my guest, Tom Rosensteel, journalist, press critic, and author of the seminal book on journalism, The Elements of Journalism, which is now in its third edition. Rosensteel is also the author of 10 other books, including four novels. He's currently the Eleanor Merrill Visiting Professor on the Future of Journalism at the Philip Merrill College of Journalism at the University of Maryland. This is part one of our conversation. Join us next week for part two, when we delve further into the role and definition of objectivity. There's been a kind of anti-intellectualism in journalism. We're just a craft, we, you know, we're not, 
Um, you know, I, I don't I don't bring any point of view to the news. I'm just uh, you know I'm just reporting the news like it's a like it's a, a thing that doesn't involve any human consciousness. You know, deciding which stories to put in the newspaper on the newscast or on the radio program. You know, I'm not deciding what the news is. It, it just happened and and I and I covered it. Well, that's just mindless and obviously not true. And discuss how journalism can play an effective role in informing the public. The algorithms that are now predominate in social media and Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, um, and, and elsewhere um, reward um, this sort of dopamine outrage. You know, they, uh, they want to feed you things that they know you will engage with and, and like and share. And we know from academic research now that those are things that either make you euphoric or make you hysterically angry, mostly hysterically angry. That actually does better than joy. Music in this episode includes Spring Fling by Track Tribe and The Heist by Silent Partner. In addition to hearing news in context every Friday at 8.30 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. on KSFP 102.5 in San Francisco, you can hear it on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, iHeartMedia, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Podbean, YouTube, and PRX. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at News in Context SF and on Instagram at News in Context. And you can find links to all of that at newsincontext.net. I'm Gina Valeria. Thank you for listening.